Hey everyone, it's Andy, and a quick word before we begin, the episode you are about to listen to was recorded the evening of Wednesday, July 18th, and that is the day before we knew about the text messages between Julie Ezel, the attorney for the health department, and Chelsea Church with the State Board of Pharmacy. That news broke late Thursday after we had already recorded the episode for this week. We didn't feel it was warranted an entirely separate emergency podcast, but we did want to let you know that uh, we know about that. We just didn't get it recorded before that happens. This is sometimes the problem about recording midweek. Anyway, enjoyed this episode. There's a great interview with State Auditor Gary Jones uh, in the last half. I think you'll really enjoy it. Hey everyone, and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore, and I'm joined as I am every week by the good doctor, Scott Melson. Hello, sir. What's up, dude? What's happening? How are you? What's up? Is that still a thing? <laughs> I no, I don't think that's been a thing. What's since happening? I don't think I don't think what's up has been a thing since about 1998. I saw someone that uh, had a, a tattoo of that the other day, some a meme, or maybe someone had sent it to me. Anyway, did that? Did that start? What did that start with? Budweiser. No, uh, yeah, but was er, I think it was Budweiser. Yeah, it was uh, around the time of the frogs. Do you remember the frogs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bud. So Wise. I always think whenever somebody does that, er. I always think of. Uh, Tur- did you watch Scrubs? No, never no. did. So there was a character Chris Turk on right, Scrubs right, right. that always went. What? Yeah, Donald Faison. Right, right, right. Is it? It's probably a throwback for our generation trying to a little bit loop people in a little bit. You should watch Scrubs. Yeah, it's on the list of it's things on, I would uh, watch. If I'm ever, if I have surgery, I remember laid up for a long time. It's on Hulu. It's really, it is fantastic. For anyone listening who always wonders, I mean, I get questioned, not as much now because Grey's Anatomy is not as much like a thing as it was 10 years ago. <clears throat> but people ask a lot, they're like, oh, is Grey's, what's, what medical show is the most accurate? Is Grey's Anatomy really accurate? No. No. Not, not remotely. No. Also, I mean, after uh, Izzy cut the LVAT wire... Right. <laughs> I don't even know what that means, right. but I know it's not okay. Right. Right. She would have gone to prison. Diddy and the ghost she, and the whole thing. She would have gone to jail. The uh, only thing I like about Grey's Anatomy um, is the fact that uh, Patrick Dempsey looks good with salt and pepper hair, and I appreciate that as yeah. a salt and peppered yeah. person myself. Mm, fair. Also, um, they did an episode about the early days of the HIV epidemic. Yes. With and uh, Chief, whatever yeah. his name was, um, talked about it, and I thought that was interesting and a good and i was glad someone was talking about right. hiv right in the common era well if you're ever if you ever have that burning question about medical tv shows they are almost without exception terrible and not terrible tv shows but they have nothing at all to do with the actual like medicine the one exception to that believe it or not is the 30 minute sitcom scrubs scrubs Scrubs, not in terms of like the medicine, but Scrubs captures, particularly for doctors that are in training, so medical students, residents. The essence. Yeah. Like it captures, I mean, and it's not just me who says this. Like, I mean, in medical school, even in residency, people would, I mean, it was like, oh, somebody understands. (laughs) So I will say one other thing about Grey's Anatomy that I thought was super bogus was that they did not upgrade to an electronic medical record system until a good three or four years after they would have already had to start paying the fine to the federal government. They missed the incentive period. They moved on. And I thought, listen, 
I may not, I may not be a smart man, Jenny, <laughs> but I know that they should have purchased an EMR several years ago. I know that they're losing tens of millions of dollars every year. Right. <laughs> that was the worst Forrest Gump impression. It wasn't. It wasn't awesome. There's a good chance that no one even knows who Forrest Gump is anymore. Because also... <laughs> because we're old? Is that what you're saying? Because I, we're old? As I told you before we started recording, I was in Chick-fil-A this evening with my children. And after one grandmother left, I looked around at this staff and the remaining few guests. And it occurred to me that I very well could have been the oldest person in the building at the ripe old age of 37. And that was an experience I was not prepared for at this age. Yeah... Yeah, I haven't I haven't been I haven't had that happen to me yet, but I'm sure it's only a matter of time. It'll happen. So we've got a solid episode. Yeah. I think today. We've got some articles that we're gonna talk about, but the the main event today, uh, we just had an we have an interview with uh, state auditor and inspector Gary Jones. Indeed. Uh former gubernatorial candidate. Um, so we'll do that here in a minute. It's a it's a good thirty minute episode or a thirty minute interview. So we won't take too much time of our own accord. Also, um, so let's do a news roundup. Hit a couple. Well, I guess one of the news articles is about current events at the State Department of Health. Indeed, which uh, has just been bananas. Yeah. So we're talking about, of course, the this is our don't miss this segment. Just mm-hmm. we get the uh, get the get the tagline in there um so we were talking of course about the medical marijuana um there is a a couple of our news articles today are dealing with so so first up um there's a great article by Catherine sweeney uh the journal record that talks about the lawsuits that are going to be moving forward with regard to the new restrictions Mm -hmm. that the state board of health put in place uh, for medical marijuana. So the big, the, the two that are the most controversial are the requirement that pharmacists be, uh, licensed pharmacists be the dispensary managers and be on premises. I believe that's the first thing. Yeah. Have to be there. And then the second thing is that banning smokable forms of marijuana. So only no doobies for you edible forms. And then the third thing, this was not get This has not gotten quite as much attention, but, um, the, putting a limit on the THC percentage that can be put in any of the marijuana products. Those are, I think those are the three things that uh, medicinal marijuana advocates are most upset about. Is it somewhat ironic that we just raised, like we loosened the alcohol laws so we can get high point beer in liquor stores, but then also like low point THC. Yeah. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. Well, so, um, for those of you that have been following state politics here with us at let's fix this, um, you'll know that recently, uh, a number of lawsuits like this have been filed and gone straight to the Supreme Court. Uh, probably the one that comes closest to comes first to my mind is the uh, cigarette fee that was, uh, you know, some parties sued and said, no, this is not a fee, it's a tax, and therefore it's unconstitutional because it didn't meet the three-fourths requirement. This was in the 2016 legislative session. Uh, no, 17 legislative session. Um, that... The Supreme Court agreed with that assessment. They overruled it. And that is what set us off on the 18 months of perpetual session in which we found ourselves. Um, You'll know that that lawsuit essentially went straight to the Supreme Court. Uh, Another one that followed that was when uh, Senator Coburn and and Oklahomans for Oklahomans for tax. What's what's his group called? Um, uh, uh, Taxpayers Unite. Taxpayers Unite. Taxpayers Taxpayers Unite. Unite. Yes. So they uh, were, you know, there's a lawsuit. That was filed against Senator Coburn and his group to try and keep them from pushing a ballot initiative to overturn the tax increase and the teacher pay raises. And that also went to the Supreme Court. However, these two lawsuits that have been filed against the State Board of Health will not be going to the Supreme Court. 
Hmm. They will be going through the district courts. So there is a, and this gets a little bit technical and neither of us are lawyers. So if you are a lawyer and you want to correct us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, please feel free to do that. Um, but our understanding based on this article from Catherine Sweeney at Journal Record is that there is there is something called uh, original jurisdiction and there are certain cases and it usually happens in cases that are highly visible that... Um, which against, this is. <laughs> which this is. Where the state Supreme Court... <coughs> can assume uh, original jurisdiction at the request of the attorneys involved in the lawsuit. So basically the attorneys involved in the lawsuit say, hey, the Supreme Court, like this is going to end up before the Supreme Court because whatever side loses is going to appeal and it's going to go to the appeals court. And then the side that loses in the appeals court is going to appeal to the Supreme Court. Like we know it's going to end up at the Supreme Court. So can we just like go straight to it? However, there are cases and these two lawsuits fall under this area where you can't do that. Both lawsuits that are being filed against the Board of Health are alleging violations of something called the Administrative Procedures Act. And the administrators, the Administrative Procedures Act requires that these kinds of cases either go through the district court of the county of the residence of the person seeking relief. So, for instance, one of the lawsuits represents a group of residents in Cleveland County who alleges that the plaintiffs are facing limited access to medication because the State Board of Health overstepped their power. So that will have to go through the Cleveland County District Court. The other lawsuit is alleging uh, that certain bo- that the board members were uh, broke the Oklahoma Open Meeting Act laws, which we talked about some last week. Dun dun dun. Because because that also is in the Administrative Procedures Act. That section says that the plaintiffs have to file complaints in the county in which the alleged infraction took place. So because the Board of Health met in Oklahoma County, um, allegedly, and had their violation of the Open Meetings Act allegedly in Oklahoma County that case has to go through the Oklahoma County District Court. So one of these cases will go through Cleveland County District Court, the other one through Oklahoma County District Court, and it there's not a there's not a law or a procedure that allows the Supreme Court to assume original jurisdiction of the case. Which means the reason the, the reason we're talking about all this, the reason this is all significant, is because that that basically means there is no scenario under which this is gonna be resolved in you know, two weeks or a month or like four to six weeks. Like that's not realistic the way that that happened with the cigarette fee and the way it happened with the Oklahoma Taxpayers Unite lawsuit. This is, um, there's a couple of attorneys quoted in the article that says, you know, four months would be the absolute fastest that he's ever seen a case like this go before the Supreme Court and get resolved. And that honestly, four to five months is wishful thinking. Like we're probably looking at six months or more before these cases are adjudicated. is Wyrick gone or is he still here? Uh, I don't remember if Justice Wyrick has been confirmed to the district court yet or not. I know he got out of committee. Or is Nicole and we need her again? Right, but I cannot remember if Justice Wyrick was confirmed before the full Senate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The Senate has been busy. Or something. There's 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 a lot going on in Washington. Distracted is perhaps another term. Right. So anyway, that's our first article, State Question 788 Lawsuits to Follow the District Court Path. That is uh, an article you will have access to if you are a subscriber of the Journal Record. And let's face it, you should be a subscriber of the, to the Journal Record. And if you're not, shame on you. I, I admit I'm not. Shame on you. But I appreciate that you are. Yeah. Because that helps me read some <laughs> articles. Uh, or at least share them with me. Um, what do you want to do next? Uh, well, since we're on medical marijuana, shall we just stay there? 
Yeah, with OK Policy. Yes, excellent. Do you want to take us through that one? Uh, yeah, so OK Policy, our friends in Tulsa, and they have a great article called Marijuana Medical Marijuana Rule Changes, Clearly the Result of Lobbying Effort. This is their capital update from Steve Lewis. And it's, uh, it's a, more of a commentary, a personal piece from Steve. Uh, and it's really interesting. He just kind of highlights like the, the role that advocates had, advocates in, and paid lobbyists had at moving this legislation um, through um, and, and the impact. And it, well, it wasn't legislation, but moving this issue kind of through the legislature, through the Board of Health, and um, and how it talks about some of the deadlines and, and that kind of stuff. And you, it's not a very long article if you want to read it. Um, and uh, I, the last paragraph, he says, probably the worst thing about this action is that is the taint it casts on state government with many who are already skeptical. It takes a certain degree of certitude, if not arrogance, to undermine a law that just received a 14-point margin of victory in a vote of the people and that after an expensive campaign against it. Um, and I think that is relevant. This article is from the 16th, uh, July 16th. And uh, so that was Monday of this week. That is relevant because on Tuesday, the 17th, some very interesting news came out. So let's move to that article. <laughs> so we have our, I mean, what he's talking about, pe- sorry, go ahead. No, okay. I'll say what he's talking about is, the fact that what we mentioned last week, the Board of Health came out, passed these, um, they put stuff out for public comment, all that happened, and then all of a sudden at the 11th hour, boom, a motion to suspend the rules, and they passed through two rules that had not been out for you know, the public comment, which is what led to the lawsuits, and ultimately um, they went against the counsel of, of their attorney. Right. So then yesterday... Uh, news came out that the general counsel for the Department of Health had resigned. I guess this happened on Friday. It didn't really make it out into the public realm until Tuesday. I was um, leaving my office for a meeting when I saw the tweet, and I stopped in my tracks and said, what? And then I got a bunch of texts from people that were just images <laughs> yeah. of a dumpster on fire. Yes. <laughs> and then about 30 minutes later, it wasn't... So everyone for 30 minutes, everyone thought... Oh, she resigned because like in protest that they went against her recommendation. But then 30 minutes later, it uh, oh came no. out. Twas not the case. That she's being charged with two felonies and a misdemeanor because she created a fake email account. Well, it was a real email account yeah, with a fake persona. And then she emailed threats to herself. And then reported those threats to the OSBI as a crime. Well, she reported those threats to the internal investigator at the health department. And then he reported it to OSBI. And then, and this all started on July 8th, right? So after the election, all this kind of stuff, um, it was just, well, it was just last week, I guess. And, and um, emails at weird hours. And so OSBI came in and investigated in that they needed to look at her cell phone. And on there, they found all the evidence right like the email account from which she sent the threats to herself right so um state impact um uh, has the full affidavit i know some other sites have it out there as well i think um joe wirtz got it and you should read it it's it's weird and it's sad like do what i I haven't read the affidavit 
Do we haven't? No. Why did she do this? Has she said why she no, did it? No. And you know, someone, oh, Ava, one of our board members, tweeted at, at me today and said, "I want to on the next episode of the podcast. I want to know why." And here we are recording it. I'm like, I don't. No one knows why. That's the thing. Her resignation was just like, I resigned effective immediately, and I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> and no, no one honestly knows why. And like, I've heard a bajillion rumors, of course, yeah. um, and that I'm not going to perpetuate because sure. they're just rumors. But sure. um, for whatever reason, she did this i don't know if it was to garner attention or if she had some kind of aim in it that we don't know about anyway so well and it's, it's worth noting that julie Ezel, who again i don't know her personally and you know i've, never I've heard she's her. very nice i'm sure she is i'm sure she's very nice You're a, lot, a lot of nice people make bad decisions dumb things from time to time but um her hiring at the health department was really kind of heralded. Like she was, I mean, she's only been there for eight months. She was supposed to be part of the like new leadership team at the health she department was brought in by Preston Dorflinger. Yeah, yeah. Who is going to, to like help transition them through the period of, you know, kind of crisis of leadership that they mm-hmm. uh, went through at the end of 2017. Um, like she was supposed to be there for the long haul and really kind of help them, you know, restructure and reform and move into the future and now this and she's gone so yeah i don't you know well god, and it just, god, god bless the health department like yeah <laughs> it just casts bad light on the department in a way that it shouldn't because this does not reflect the really solid like good work that right. the rank and file employees are doing right and i will say that um so i will i will make a comment about the governor's statement when we get to that after she resigned then Attorney General Mike Hunter. Yeah. So today, so today the uh, Mike Hunter um, released a kind of letter that contains some communication between him and Tom Bates, who is the interim director at the health department. Um, and th- and this is really interesting. You can find all the details for this in article, um, in an article on non-doc. Uh, Attorney General Hunter has said that he his legal opinion is that the board overstepped its authority by making policy decisions. Um, to uh, about the medical marijuana law that the voters passed. He thinks that they um, are inconsistent with the plain language of state question 788 and that the board of health acted outside of its authority when it voted to implement them. Um, so the people of the state have spoken and I have a legal duty to ob- honor the decision made by the electorate. The electorate and my advice today is made pursuant to that responsibility as attorney general. Um, so he basically says, uh, yeah, you you went too far. You didn't have the authority to make these rules, and you are going to be in legal jeopardy if you don't fix them. Mm-hmm. So he is recommending that the board convene a special session, a special meeting, and amend these rules. Um, and he's also recommending that they work with the bipartisan working group that Speaker McCall and Senate Pro Tem Schultz uh, announced last week. Schultz was it Schultz or Treat? Treat. Treat. Senate Pro Tem Treat. Um, announced last week that is going to have legislators working to figure out kind of what what the rules for medical marijuana need to look like moving forward the reason that this is just so interesting like to me is in this lawsuit right the two people that are or the two groups that are suing the state board of health typically it would be the attorney general's office who would defend the state board of health in court unless i'm like missing something right like the attorney general's office often defends the state of Oklahoma and state agencies when they go to court. And so now their own lawyers are saying, uh, yeah, you guys done messed up and you best fix it because if you don't fix it, 
I'm not saying we're not going to be there to defend you, but I'm not saying that we are. Right. Like he is not well, committed. He was like, yeah, he you made not a bad com- decision. You should fix it. Yeah. And he is not. And he has not committed the attorney general's office to participating in their defense right. in the in the lawsuit. So that's. And so then today, did you read the governor's statement today? I did not. So her statement was pretty brief. And I'll say this was not a bad statement in my personal opinion. Uh, it basically said, hey, I, you know, the governor said, I think the Board of Health should come back and undo these two rules. I mean, that was the essential. And all right. I was like, eh, okay. And she said, like, this, um, uh, how did she phrase it? Like, basically, like, this is distracting from the good work that the people of the Department of Health do. And she had a little jab in there at the groups pushing 788. They basically said, "Of course she did." It was unreasonable for you to think that we could get this done in such a short time frame, which is also accurate. Like, I know that the health department can't hire anyone within 30 days if they go through their traditional processes. It's an right. extraordinarily bureaucratic process, um, and so the idea that they would implement all these rules within 30 days is a little ridiculous. Right. That and. Yes, I'll just leave it there. I was gonna, have some, I was, I was gonna have some more commentary, but no, you said all that needs to be said. Excellent. So, speaking of Governor Fallon, yes. uh, we've got an article from KGOU today. We got a couple articles from KGOU today. This is from Carolyn Halter. Um, this is talking about the Ethics Commission and Governor Fallon. Uh, also, man, a lot of lawsuits. The Ethics Commission is suing the governor uh, and some other elected uh, elected officials. So they they are saying that. Um, Governor Fallon and members of the legislature violated the state constitution. Um, so the Oklahoma state constitution requires the legislature to quote, sufficiently fund the ethics commission. Um, they ethics commission requested $3 million for 2019 fiscal year, which started July one. However, the legislature said, no, we're not going to appropriate to you. Just use money that you collect through fees in your own revolving fund, which is about $700,000 to continue operating. So less, you know, well under, well under thirty percent, right. about about twenty five percent of the amount that they requested. Number one, um, and well, so, I mean, it's like if someone said, "Hey, uh, can I have three thousand dollars?" and they said, "How about seven hundred dollars?" Yeah, right. That's or ex- that's yes. To boil it down, uh, I need thirty dollars to go buy a shirt. And Here's seven. Seven. Yeah. Um, Ashley Kemp, who is the executive director, says that um, without the additional funding, the commission, the Ethics Commission, will not be able to thoroughly review campaign finance reports for the 2018 election cycle. What possible incentive would the legislature have for not wanting them Mm. to be able to review campaign finance reports? The other thing that is uh, interesting, um, in May, the Ethics Commission made a couple of recommendations uh, that caused some consternation among some of our elected leaders. Um, Essentially, they put forward a rule that would require former lawmakers and certain state employees to wait two years after leaving office before they could become a registered lobbyist. Um, A registered lobbyist. There were several members of the legislature who had elected to retire at the end of the session and already had lined up jobs as registered lobbyists who were upset right uh and there was a big push um to kind of quash this recommendation that push resulted in house joint resolution 1029 which was signed by the governor on may 3rd which said um hey ethics commission we hear you and no right so (coughs) some folks at the ethics commission are seeing this refusal on the part of the legislature to fund them 
as like reprisal for the ethics commission trying to limit their post public service careers. Right. And even if it's not, if it's, <clears throat> if it's really not, then this was a, a huge oversight by the legislature that just, once again, they bumbled the optics of it for whatever that's worth. I will say that it is again, an example, I think of the, the legislature saying, Hey, we want to police ourselves for which we have zero trust, right? The public has zero trust. They're going to do that. And, and this, if they had been like, we reject your rule and we pass our own law to say that, okay, fine. Right. You would have proved us wrong and that would have been right. great. Right. But in this case, they're like, no, we don't want to be more ethical about our behavior. Right. And, um, <laughs> and rep John Paul Jordan, who is a nice guy, but he said, uh, in the article, uh, even if we think this is a good idea, I think we need to stand strong against government exercising its authority it doesn't have, meaning um, exercising, um, making rules to that with private citizens, implying that the moment that they leave the legislature, they're just a private citizen, which like is is and is not true, right? Like, I mean, yes, it is, but... Um, the, the president is also no longer, he's a private citizen, but we still give him um, secret service. Right. And he's still an important right. figure. And can I just say government imposes rules on private citizens literally all the time. <laughs> Right. Like literally all the time. And the fact that it was coming from a lawmaker whose job is to make laws <laughs> right. to affect the well, private citizens. Now, to be fair to Representative Jordan, he was saying it's not that government can't make rules against private citizens. He's saying that the Ethics Commission specifically can't. Right. He's saying if this is going to be something that is done, it would have to be done by the legislature. The argument would there be that the legislature is probably never going to pass a law that's going to make them turn away jobs that pay them lots of money when they're done. Right. Right. Um, and so there has to be an independent agency who can do that in their place. And and is it inconvenient? Yes. Is it annoying? Sure, maybe. Is it uh, is it arguably, possibly, in the best interests of the people? And is it just a goodwill gesture towards this towards the people of Oklahoma who have been burned by, or at least feel like they've been right. burned by their state officials for several years? Yes, definitely. Right. Right. And and and, and you know, to be fair. For a lot of legislators who work multiple jobs while they're in, they may not like it. It's designed to stop them from going to be a high-powered lobbyist, right? Like that's probably the intent of the rules, but it also could inhibit them from going to be an executive director of like a small nonprofit, and in that role they would advocate some, right? Right. right. And, and I think it specifically said that it's registered lobbyists. Right? Well, a lot so of directors are, though. I mean, uh, that's true. And, you know, I, I mean, um, former Let's Fix This board member, Effie Craven, yeah. was a registered lobbyist for the food banks. Yes. Well, come on. Like, that's... Yeah. A, She's a lobbyist literally trying to get people food. <laughs> Starving people food. <laughs> right. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, small organizations like that. Uh, Joe Dorman, I don't know if he's registered or not, but a former lawmaker who is now director of the Oklahoma Institute for Child Advocacy and does a lot of advocacy on behalf of children. And, yeah. like, he is not... It's not making the big bucks, right? Like, in fact, he's got to go out and like raise money to pay his own salary. Like, it's for sure. And he's taken on another another organization to help out, right? Yeah. And so the okay foster wishes. So like, he's a busy guy. Yeah, and so I'm just saying, like, I I get what they're saying. Like, yeah, you you're trying to prevent this, but you might prevent this other thing unintentionally. And it is sticky then, right? And, and in that case, well, and it's maybe you go in and just. 
make sure for the first two years you right. don't lobby. Right, right. And I can't even believe I'm saying this. It's also sticky, too, because lobbyists, as we've talked about on the show, you know, there's this tendency to think, like, there's a tendency to think that, like, oh, they should all have term limits, and that would fix the problem. Well, we've talked about how term limits, right? They have them. Yeah, yeah. That, like, how term limits, they, because of term limits, there is a substantial turnover and loss of institutional knowledge every election cycle when people retire or term out. And so when lawmakers leave office and come back as a lobbyist, that can help restore a little bit of that institutional knowledge, right? You got somebody mm-hmm. who served 12 years in the legislature, comes back as a lobbyist, and then meets with a freshman senator or a freshman representative about, you know, okay, well, here's the bill you're trying to, here's here's the bill that I want you to run, right? And let's say, let's say it's not a bill to like, you know, cut corporate taxes to nothing and we write checks to all the biggest businesses in Oklahoma, right? It's not something like that. It's like we're, I'm part of the Oklahoma Water Cooperative and we're trying to run a bill to improve access to clean water for the citizens of Oklahoma. Me as the lobbyist, who's a 12 year legislator telling the freshmen, here are some, here are some ways that you could help get this done. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like, legislators coming back as lobbyists is not inherently evil or bad, right. but I don't think that it's unreasonable that there should be a waiting or like cooling off period so that they can't come back at the next session and start lobbying on issues in which they were actively engaged mm-hmm. when they were still there. Right. I think is the intent. Right. Right. So, um, all right. In the interest of time, I'm going to shortcut one of these. It's the other article from KGOU entitled Oklahoma Women Find Common Ground in Unease with Political Parties and Education Issues. Absolutely worth checking out, but I agree. We'll, uh, we'll leave that, we'll for, skip over leave to, that uh, for our readers, too, our right. listeners, to so, check out for themselves. Um, the highlight is, I think, the first paragraph. And basically it says uh, they, the Oklahoma Engage, um, uh, an Oklahoma Engaged project reached out and did a survey of uh, women in Oklahoma, and 55% disapprove of the Democrats, 60% no. Oh, man. You were there. You were there. Was that correct? Yeah. Yeah. They... So Oklahoma Engaged reached out and did a survey of women in the state. And 55% were uh, disappointed with the Democrats. And 60% were disapp- were unfavorable about Republicans. So basically they're saying, hey, women are tuning in more than ever and they don't like any of you. If you're a politician, there's a 50-50% chance that women are pissed at you. Right. and edu- No matter which party you belong to. And education is the big issue around them. And certainly, yeah. you know, the uh, percentage of teachers that are uh, women is is heavily slanted. Um, but I will say, I mean, we had our annual meeting, our annual board meeting last Saturday and reviewed, uh, you know, uh, social media engagement and email lists. And by far, we have more women than men that are... Uh, that are interacting with Let's Fix This. I think yep. we've we, that bears out, which is really exciting because it is a group that has historically had lower than average turnout and lower than average engagement. And historically, women typically in Oklahoma, women typically vote the way their husband does if women vote at all. In many cases, they just kind of defer and say, well, he votes for our family. And um, I want to say, like, you, everyone gets a vote, right? Everyone, every voter gets a vote. Your vote matters regardless of your gender identity your um gender your sexual preference any of these things doesn't matter your age like your vote matters 
please go vote. All right. With that, let's do our last article. Um, are we doing this Oklahoma Watch? Yeah. Um, with low turnout, <laughs> should Oklahoma kill off the primary runoff? What do you think, Scott? Yes. Yeah, Scott says yes. Yes. I I think a change <laughs> is needed. So this is a, a much longer article. Well, not much longer. It's like two pages. Um, I printed them. So on paper, it's two pages. On your computer screen, it's no pages. Um, but it's really uh, interesting. Trevor does a great job of kind of diving into the numbers, um, discusses the part I found most interesting was the cost of switching. So there's been a lot of it's talk. so huge. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a lot of talk about switching um, to a, a like a ranked choice or an yeah. instant runoff system. Which and, they did in Maine this year to somewhat mixed results. Yeah. Um, but it's more complicated. And so we're at this weird point in history where we are very concerned about the fidelity of our elections and that they're not being hacked. Oklahoma is one of the only few states that has the same voting machines across the entire state. So every precinct has the same kind of machine. And we use paper ballots and you can't hack some paper. Right. Yeah. In order to hack our election, you have to bring a suitcase of uh, ballots in or steal them somehow. And it just doesn't happen. Right. And, and that's great. So we have a very secure voting system. However, there's not really a mechanism to tabulate and like the run the algorithm to do in a ranked choice. And so to upgrade or not upgrade, but to change, it would cost an estimated $20 million, which is a big deal. That's a lot. It, if you're asking me, Andy Moore, concerned citizen, about how to spend $20 million on elections, I say, let's get that online voter registration up and running that we passed several years ago. Yeah, right. Uh, although if you're, if you're asking me, I would say, um, if you, I think it depends on how you phrase the question, if people think it's worth it. Should the state spend $20 million to upgrade their voting system? Well, a lot of people probably say no. Is your democracy worth $20 million? <laughs> is saving is saving America worth $20 million? <laughs> If you put a- <laughs> also, do you want to buy one jet or do you want to fix elections in Oklahoma? Ah, there you go. Ah, there you go. Let's put it in perspective. We don't, we don't need it. How much does one F thirty five cost? Like fifteen billion or something? Yeah, like a lot, a lot more. But it is. It's um, Trevor. He said it, he does a great job. It's a really nice article. He talks about the he talks about the ranked choice system that they're using in Maine. He talks about the jungle primary system, which you and I have talked some about here, uh, switching to in Oklahoma that they use in California and some potential you know, pitfalls as well as, you know, pluses of that. Uh, and then just talks about a, a system that the majority of the states use, which is just a winner is the winner is whoever gets a plurality, right? So if you run in five candidates and the race comes out, you know, uh, 48, 22, 10, 15, five, mm-hmm. I don't know if those numbers add up to a hundred, but pretend they do <laughs> <laughs> the, the candidate who got 48% wins as opposed to the candidate who got 42 having a runoff with the candidate who got 22. So just a one shot? Yeah. So Is it a, in like somewhere in Canada or somewhere cool like that that you can't campaign? Like the campaigns only start like six weeks beforehand. It's oh, like it's, a, it's most places. It's like a really short campaign season. Yeah, it's most places. So in the, UK, in, the, in the UK, I know in the UK, I want to say it's six weeks. Like elections, you cannot advertise campaign. I mean, right. which honestly you would, start be, in, would be awesome. I right. mean, it's like... It'd be start awesome. at the end of September, start at Labor Day, and then from Labor Day to Election Day, right? And that would and that's election season. And I think, I mean, this is a I think this is a larger discussion, but I mean, I really do think that a system like that, I think our politics would be a lot more productive, right? That would that would eliminate the like, you know, that would eliminate at the national level, 
particularly that would eliminate you know congressmen and congresswomen kind of being perpetually in campaign mode raising money mm-hmm. um it would for the presidency i think it would you know the certainly the, the presidential cycle would not start nearly as early <laughs> you imagine only having like six weeks for that I, instead I, of like 16 I dream, months i dream about it wow i dream about it uh, um so i know that that was supposed to be our last article no, but scott's got one more can i can i interject the cost of an f-35 raptor isn't it 30 billion uh, that's for the whole program, I oh. think. The most recent price quote... That would be a lot for one plane. ...from last year was $94.6 million. But President Trump, this is perhaps the only thing he and I agree on, so that price was too high. <laughs> He's I will agree that $95 million it's for one airplane is too much. much. So they're going to have a cost-saving drive to reduce the price of each plane to around $80 million by 2020. That's still too much. $80 million for one airplane. Well, it's a bargain. Yeah. Prime Day sale. I bought a fighter jet for 80 million. Well, so. Got free shipping. And with that, we're going to jump to our interview with State Auditor Gary Jones. Hey, Gary, Andy Moore, how are you? Doing good. Can you hear me okay? I can. I was sorting cattle <laughs> and I saw your text. <laughs> That's all right. I, it's, it's that time of year, isn't it? Well, it is when your neighbor gets a bull and a, and a cow and a calf on you, and he's wanting to get them off. So I had to get all mine up, and uh, now we got to get them over and sort him out. Sort them out. Sure, sure. Well, hey, I'm. Uh, we're joined by Scott Melson, who's my co-host. He's here with me. Hey, Gary, how are okay. you? Good. Um, well, thanks so much for taking some time away from your cattle rustling to uh, uh, to visit with us. Um, well, cat, cattle, cattle gathering, not cattle gathering. He's not he's not stealing the cattle, presumably, right? <laughs> That's uh, yeah, they're, they're they're my cattle and my neighbor's cattle on me that we're trying to sort off and give them back to him. That's funny. I used to live up in Minnesota when I was in junior high, and uh, one of my best friends lived in kind of a rural area of Wisconsin in a very small town. And one of he got to football practice one day, and the coach, a guy, showed up late, and the coach said, "You know, you're late. You're late. You got to run laps." And he said, "I'm sorry, I was up till three. We had a hole in the fence, and I had to had to go catch all of our cattle." And he just looked at the team, and the coach said, "Can anyone verify that?" And two guys said, "I saw him out in the field in his boots and underwear around two forty-five. He said, "Okay, you're off the hook." <laughs> That's awesome. So, uh, all right, well, we just wanted to, uh, as I mentioned earlier, just kind of visit with you a little bit about what it uh, what it takes to be the state auditor. Uh, and so we sure. just made some really basic questions here. Um, and we wanted to start by, I meant to look this up, but how long have you been the state auditor? Uh, I'm going on my eighth year. I've been, uh, was it uh, right now, it'd be seven years and six months and a few days. Sure. Is, so it's an elected position. Are there term limits for this position? Uh, there are now. They uh, they actually implemented term limits. It was on the ballot, on the same ballot that I got elected. Huh. Um, and so I actually ran three times. I ran in 2002 and got 49%. Ran in 2006 and got 49%. And then ran in 2010 and got uh, 56 almost 57%. Okay, and, uh, right. and but on been... that ballot, they so it literally took me longer to get the job than I get to stay. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and that was that was the election when Governor Fallon was elected. It was. Was it a, a bit of a... You're, you're a Republican. Was it a bit of a red wave that year? 
It was. I was actually chairman of the Republican Party for six and a half years, and I stepped down as chairman to run. And uh, when I was began chairman, we were minorities in, in the House, the Senate. Uh, we had two statewide elected officials, and after that 2010 election, we had super majorities in the House and Senate, and we had all 11 Republicans. Wow. And I'm proud that's to say the, I helped, uh, that's quite the helped change. build that. <laughs> we did. We did. Well, I think, you know, a, a lot of folks in this last year have started paying attention to Oklahoma politics, and, and they're certainly mad with the party in power right now, and that would have been different 10 years ago. Yeah. And, I mean, I think the Democrats kind of had power for about 90, <laughs> 50 years. Yeah, at least. And, then, uh, and, and now it's switched, and, and I think a lot of the public are upset with both sides. Yeah, I, I uh, when I got elected, people said, you know, here's this guy that came from being chairman of the Republican Party. He'll, he'll be the most partisan person at the Capitol, and I've been the least partisan person. Sure. I, uh, you know, my, my job does not have to do with partisan politics. It has to do with doing what's right, and that's what we have uh, we have fought to do at you know every step of the way. Yeah. So, could you tell us a little bit about what the state auditor does? Well, we we are the watchdog. We're the ones that uh, you know we audit the books of uh, counties, all 77 counties, uh, 60-something emergency management districts, 27 district attorney districts, and then state agencies. And and um, while we don't do individual audits, uh, you know, on each individual agency, we do audit them as part of the uh, what's called the Consolidated Annual Financial Report, which is a big financial report that includes the $24 billion worth of spending that's done in the state of Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have we have 100 and when I came in, we had 121 employees. We're down to about 108 now. And uh, we we did everything we can to streamline the office. Uh, we used to have a, a chief of staff, a public relations person, a legislative liaison, administrative assistants. We've eliminated all those and, and uh, you know, really shored up the auditor position. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think we had seven CPAs, and we now have 15. Oh, right. So uh, you but, kind of re- reapportioned staff where, where it counts most. Yeah, three years ago, Governor Fallon said we should eliminate 10% of all the non-mission critical expenses. I said, no, we should focus on 100% of the dollars going to the mission critical expenses. We don't need any non-mission critical expenses out there. Mm-hmm. And that's what we've done in our office. And, and so subsequently, we're the, we're the ones that go out there and look at the different books. And, and uh, you know, there are different types of audits. Primarily what we do are financial statement audits. We, we do some performance audits, but only on request. And we also do investigative audits when requested as well. Can you, Gary, could you kind of, for the folks listening, could you explain the difference between a financial statement audit and a performance audit? What's the difference there? Yeah, financial statement audit is where you're looking at the books to determine whether or not the money is spent according to how they've recorded it, whether or not it, it follows the statutes. A performance audit is where you look to see whether or not it's done cost-effectively, efficiently, and whether it could be done you know, in a different manner where you could save taxpayers dollars. And, uh, you know, we, we, we have, from the day I went into office, we've tried to get the, the authority to be able to initiate those. And, uh, the, the legislature, primarily the Senate and one Senator fought us for years. And then, uh, you know, we, we had like four or five different bills that have died in the Senate and one that finally got passed and the governor vetoed it that, uh, actually set up what's called a joint committee on accountability, which was a partnership between the house, the Senate and the auditor's office. So we would go through and look to see which agencies to audit in what order and do performance audits. And, uh, you know, uh, we're very proud of what we've done. We've taken, you know, when we went in there, 
uh, the, the audits there are done by other agencies, other other uh, CPA firms were sent to us and filed in the basement. Now we put them online. We've gone, uh, Oklahoma as a whole rates like an F in transparency and integrity, but the auditor's office gets a B. And the only reason we don't get an A is because we can't initiate investigative and performance audits. Investigative audits, so when, whenever you're looking at, at, uh, at malfeasance, fraud, different things like that, and we can't initiate those either. So that's that's really interesting to me. Um, to kind of go back to the per, the performance audits that you were talking about, that though you can't initiate those, but you have been trying to get the authority to initiate those. You've had bills in the legislature and never gotten one out of committee. Uh, to me, that's interesting because I well, feel no, like- they made that they made it out of committee and they made it out of the house. Uh, they didn't get hearings in the Senate. Okay. And it was was this just and, one uh, was this just one senator or a group of senators that was kind of holding this? It was up? primarily Senator Senator Clark Jolly was the one that was primarily blocking it. Hmm. And then once we got and once once we you know the, when we finally got the Joint Committee on Accountability bill, it passed the House overwhelmingly, and uh, and then the uh, Senator Jolly finally let it be heard in the Senate. And then he uh, he told the, one of his fellow senators that he had arranged it to be vetoed, that uh, Denise Northrup had made arrangements with the governor to veto the bill, and they did. It's funny how many times we hear these same names coming up in conversations. It is, and it's, uh, you know, we have an extremely professional staff. We, we rated real high. We, we, get, we uh, have a peer review every three years. And we've gone through three of them since I've been there, and we we have maxed out and, and you know uh, graded the top you can in the peer reviews. When I first came in, uh, you know, we asked the question, "Who audits the auditor?" Obviously, we can't audit ourselves, so we hired a private CPA firm. And every year since I've been there, we've been audited by a private CPA firm and been peer reviewed, and uh, and always came out uh, you know uh, rating as high as we could rate. And uh, never had a political hire since I've been in office. We we hired nobody because of political reasons. Every person we hire, we uh, we we uh, have a team of people that looks at them. We make a recommendation as to who the best person to fill the job is, and we hire them based on qualifications and experience. Sure. And subsequently, we have a, a lot more professional staff because of that. That sounds that sounds like that's pretty much how it how it should work. Uh, well, you would think it would, but but you know. But then you have this thing called politics that come into sure. play, and that's one thing that we, you know, and, and on the, the performance arts that we've done, we did a performance on corrections and made very many recommendations, and they pretty well ignored them. You know, right. Well, you recommended that we, they needed more money, right? Yeah, and that's that's uh, we recommended that they they uh, they have too few guards, they're underpaid, their facilities are crumbling, they don't have programs to treat people for alcohol and mental health, they don't have, uh, you know, they're not they're not. Uh, don't have the work programs teaching them how to how to get a different profession than the one that got them in there. And, you know, uh, Director Allball is doing a stellar job, but he doesn't have the resources necessary that he needs to really fix the problems and turn corrections around. And uh, a lot of the recommendations that we made are the very things that he's been saying that need to be done. And, you know, six years before we did that audit, they, they hired a private CPA firm from out of state, and they spent $900,000. Ours cost 250000 They spent 900000 and pretty well came up with the same recommendations that we do, uh, we did. Right. And so what you, what you find is it's, they, they want you to find recommendations of how you can cut, but they don't want you to come back and say, you know, hey, listen, you need to make further investments. Kind of like when, when I came up with the plan to give teachers a pay raise. A lot of people are saying, well, we don't need any additional revenue. Well, you passed three pay raises and, and, and not found a funding source to fund them. 
you know, here's a, here's a very reasonable way by which that you can fund this teacher pay raise and get this off a high center and move things forward and solve a problem that, that's been out there for years that is festering. I mean, we're losing teachers left and right. We have a, a large number of uncertified teachers. And and the farm club is is drying up, meaning students that would go into into education in colleges aren't going into education because they don't see a future in it. Yeah. Right. So you brought up a and couple so, of interesting things there that we wanted to follow up on. One uh, was my question is, there's been talk this year about doing away with the auditor's office in general or completely and moving entirely to private um, audits. And, and I was curious that you, you mentioned the, the price or the cost of an audit done by a private firm versus the well, cost. And, 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 and what the, the, the reasoning there is, and for instance, they now have, they have set up a, a, a performance audit division underneath the, the legislative bureau. They call it a commission. But basically, for years, they've been trying to get where they can grade their own test. And uh, if you look at that, it says, you know, if, if you go back and listen to some of the uh, some of the audio on the hearings or the meetings, they said that well, they said we don't want to recommend that they need more money, but we don't want to recommend that their appropriations be cut. And I'm going, then it's not an audit. If you have predetermined outcomes, you can't call that an audit. Right. I mean, that's what we. Well, that's what that's that's that bill that they passed this year, right? That part of the so-called yeah, and, and, the government reform package, saying yeah, we're going to have these agencies audited, but you can only recommend cost-cutting measures. That's not really right. And 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 you've given all this additional money to the House and the Senate and, and the Legislative Service Bureau. And little games they play, like they they two years ago they cut the appropriations to the House and Senate by twenty-five percent and say, look, we cut our own budget. But then you turn around and funded a tremendously higher, you know, something like a hundred fifty percent increase in the Legislative Service Bureau that really does nothing but fund money right back to you. Mm-hmm. And so, so now, uh, you know, they they try to empower themselves more. And and I'm going, you know, your job ought to be to to legislate and appropriate. But what you want to do is you seem to want to micromanage everything. Sure. Yeah. And, and that's that's uh, you know we. we we have yet to have anybody, you know, we made several recommendations that people don't like, and we're going, you know, guys, I'm sorry, but this is the, where the facts lead. We're not, our job is not to come in here and, and give you predetermined outcomes. Our job is to tell you the truth, right. and that's what we've always done. And, and, and we, we make recommendations and, and of how you can fix problems, and, and instead of going through and, and implementing those recommendations, they want to come back and say, well, no, we want somebody else to look at it. And we want, it to, we want somebody to look at this until we find somebody that gives us the answer we want. Not as the opposed to truth. Tells us the truth. Tells us the truth of what we really need to do. You know, a good example is, is uh, they gave one excuse as why they don't want to recommend that any more money be spent. When, when the, uh, uh, the firm MTG did the audit on corrections something like 13, 14 years ago, they, they charged them $900,000. And they said that you need to invest about $10 million to fix these problems. And they said, well, we, don't, we didn't have $10 million, so we ignored the audit. So now you're coming back trying to find somebody else to say, well, give us a solution that we don't need to spend money, that we don't need to make the investments. Well, that's not the answer. I mean, we came to the same conclusion that you know, we, didn't, we didn't quantify it, but we did say that, that you, need to, you need to pay your guards more. You need to, you need to have more guards. You need to, uh, you, you need, you've got facilities that are crumbling that, that are not built for prison. And, and you got, if you want to fix this problem, you're going to have to invest in it in order to turn, turn this trend around where you don't have so many people going into prison and then coming right back in. You know, when you get out, coming right back in. You keep talking like that, Gary, and they're going to call you a Democrat. 
Well, you keep talking about that. What, they, <laughs> I, what I say is that I, I'm a common sense conservative. I mean, you know, this idea that, uh, you know, we need to cut, cut, cut. And I'm going, guys, here's the thing. If you go back and look, we had cut revenue something like, you know, 12 or 13 times. Right. Right. And and yes, we did come back, and for the first time, we passed the bill to increase revenue. And they said it's the biggest tax increase in state history. I said, resetting the gross production tax from two percent to five percent is not a tax increase. That's still a that's a reset cut. of an unreasonable rate, and that we we have problems with health care. And and one of the main problems we have is we have so many people that smoke, and the, the cost of of providing health care for those people. That's why we did the cigarette tax. Sure. And, and then we're taking money out of general fund and giving it to roads and bridges because we don't have enough money to fix roads and bridges. Well, we, we did a reasonable increase in the gasoline and diesel tax. And then after the first year, those, those items are dedicated to where they need to go. Right. And um, I told somebody, I said, you know, if you came back and you, you redid the tax structure, those are not the items that you, it, you, know, you would change. You would come back and, you know, a lot of people said we ought to look at, at reducing the taxes on groceries. You know, let's maybe do something that would provide a better incentive for people in Oklahoma that have businesses and want to provide jobs for them to, to provide more jobs and maybe entice some businesses to come into Oklahoma to, uh, to do business here without, without going out there and have to offer them a chunk of money and saying, here, we're going to bribe you to come to Oklahoma. And then what happens is they're looking for the next good deal in another state, and they're the first ones to leave. Sure. Gary, yep. you, you, mentioned, you mentioned that you know you can't, as the state auditor's office, you can't initiate performance audits and you can't initiate um, investigative audits, but they have to be requested. Who can request an audit from the state auditor? Who can, who can come to and, you and, and say, that, we, we need to audit this agency or this office? The, the, the agency themselves can do it. For instance, the, the corporation came to us about four four or five years ago and said, we we're thinking about hiring internal hiring our own internal auditors, but we don't know what they should do. Can you come help us in the interview process and, and kind of outline what they should do? And I said, why don't you do this? Instead of you guys hiring internal auditors that you really don't know how to manage, why don't you contract with us and we'll put embedded auditors in your agency and we'll come into a risk assessment on your entire agency and, and look to see which programs need to be looked at first in what order we have been been doing a series of performance audits in the Corporation Commission since that time. And Bob Anthony, you know, this is his 30th year there. He said in just 30 years, it's, it's the single best thing they've ever done. You know, I was That's I was a- thinking about Bob Anthony the other day, trying to figure out how long he'd be on the Corporation Commission because I turned 18, I turned 16, 18 years ago. And uh, his yeah. name was on the gas pump when I turned 16, and it's been there. Ever, it's been there ever since. Well, you're right. And what's funny is that that the term limits was two terms. Well, corporation commissions are six terms, six-year terms. So whenever that was implemented in 2010, well, Bob Anthony wasn't on the ballot until uh, let's see, what it would be 2000, 2012. Yeah, I think you're right. So, so, so what that meant is that his in 2012, his first year towards term limits started, So, and then he can run again for another term, so which means that, that he'll be able to go till 2024. Uh-huh. So he gets 14 years, but we, they're on the ballot on four-year terms, we get eight years. And I, I love my job. I love the people I work with. We're very proud of the team we built. You know, my, my deputy, Cindy Bird, who was very, very instrumental in getting us caught up and helping build that team, is running to replace me. And, uh, you know, I tell people when Cindy gets elected, we'll have an upgrade in the auditor's office. <laughs> you know, she, she's, she's that, that qualified. And, and I, I'll be the first to tell you that I, I am 
one of those people that subscribe to the, to the uh, notion that you surround yourself with smart people. And we have, you know, someone, someone told me one time, every time you're in the room, you're the smartest guy in the room. I laughed and said, listen, I'm in my office. And I said, in, in my office, virtually any division I'm in, I'm not even the smartest person in the division. <laughs> we, we hire smart people. And that's what, that's what uh, we hire smart, pe- hire smart people. We, we give them the tools they need and we help, help provide the direction and say, hey, yeah, in fact, I can remember when we in uh, we promoted Cindy to be the uh, state director of county audits. She used to call me about once a day, about, actually about three or four times a day, and say, "Listen, I've got this issue here, and here's what I think we ought to do." And and after about a week of that, she said, "Well, I hope you don't think I'm bothering you." I said, "No, that's my job, but let me tell you what I want you to do." I said, "When you call me, I want you to tell me what the problem is. You tell me what your what the possible solutions are, and you tell me which one you would choose." About eight or nine, about eight or nine days later, I realized I hadn't heard from Cindy. <laughs> so I called her and I said, "Cindy, is everything okay?" She said, "Yeah, I'll call you when I need you." <laughs> and then that's that. That's we we we've we've eliminated all the bottlenecks. And everything doesn't have to flow through me. Right. And so subsequently, we get a whole lot more work done because of that. Sure. Is there anyone besides an agency head uh, that can that can well, yeah, yeah, investigate it? Yeah, the agency heads can request it. The governor can request them. An investigative audit, the, the AG and the governor can request. Uh, or the, the speaker and the pro tem together can make a request. And since that law was used to be the speaker or the pro tem, but that, that got changed in 2004. Since that law has been changed, there has never been a request coming from the speaker and the pro tem. That's interesting. And so, which, which, is, which is amazing to me. We now have a commission that's made up of non-elected individuals. Three appointed by the governor, three appointed by the speaker, and three appointed by the pro tem to to hire outside firms to do these performance audits. The governor can request it to herself, or the speaker and the pro tem can request them. They and never we've never that. had the speaker and the pro tem do it. So this idea that that uh, we somehow are not doing our job. Well, guess what, guys? I can tell you who's not doing the job is the ones that don't give us the authority. Now, as far as investigative arts, we are we are two constitutional officers that got combined years ago. That's why we're the state auditor and inspector. We used to be the state auditor and the inspector general. The inspector general used to have the authority to go out and initiate investigations. And when they combine them, they remove that authority. So, I mean, if we see something that needs to be looked at, we ought to have the ability to go in there and look at it, but we don't. Sure. Well, you might be able to to at least get a jump on stuff, like at the health department this year. That was is an ongoing well, and, and, debacle. And, and <laughs> I, people said, what did we miss? We didn't miss anything. Right. I mean, we went back and looked, and what happened at the health department, keep in mind, we do an audit after the end of a year. Right. What happened at the health department is after that year was over with, and they went into went into you know, uh, fiscal year 2018, then the, C, uh, the CPA, Chief Financial Officer, s- said that they had problems, that they had money that was restricted they couldn't use, and that they had money that they owed. And so subsequently, because they were using two different sets of books, we audited the official books, and they were correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But when, when, whenever they looked at the, the books that should have been closed out and should have been done away with, then they came back and said, we got problems. We need $30 million to make payroll and pay these bills. Then the Secretary of, of Health asked us to come in because there was confusion between his upper management people as to whether or not they needed this money. We got called in before we had the chance to really get in there. I mean, we hadn't, we just barely got in there. And that's when the governor blew the thing up, asked for the resignations, and, and uh, then they sent, a, sent somebody else in. And that, they came back and said, yep, we've got to have $30 million, and we, we uh, need to lay all these people off. Well, because of all the changes, it slowed down what we were doing on our audit. And within a week after the layoffs, 
right. our people well, came in and said, they, our people came in and said, hey, you need to sit down. And I said, how bad is it? And they looked at me and said, you're not going to believe this. I said, man, how big is it? And there is no missing money. And here's here's the other thing, too, is they didn't need the money, the additional $30 million to make payroll, and they did not need to lay these people off. If, they, if, if, if all these things hadn't happened and slowed down the process of us getting in there and doing this performance, because we sent like five CPAs in there. We had our top folks in there looking at this. They reconciled 52 different accounts. And, and went through and looked at everything and said, balancing every you know every month for, for since since uh, June of 2010, or, or actually uh, July of 2010, clear up to date. What we find is that they didn't need this money, Jeez. and they always had enough money there to pay to pay their payroll. Jeez. And uh, but it but it it took top notch people walking in there and doing it. But because they had the grand jury that was called, and then they. The legislative oversight, you know, committee, and um, all these other things that slowed the process down. Then they let the key people go, and once we finally got got in there and waited to do it, we said, "Guys, this, you know, the reason we didn't find it because there was nothing missing. There was nothing to find other than the fact that they misunderstood their own finances, and and a new guy came in that didn't understand how it all works and said the sky is falling, and and ultimately." you know, caused the problems wow. and you didn't have, and the people you put in there didn't know enough to know that it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, that wasn't the case. Yeah. So maybe, um, I know we've taken uh, a, a good chunk of your time here. I had, uh, I think Scott's got one last question for you. Yeah. The, and this is, sure. this is, to, this is going to ask you to speak fairly broadly um, as much as you can. You know, one of the things that we heard and we've really heard for the last couple of years at, out of the legislature is that, there is not a there is not a revenue problem that really there's just we need to focus on eliminating waste fraud and abuse from the state government do you feel like you know you're looking at the end of 8 years as the state auditor do you feel like there is a dramatic or underreported or un, unknown problem of waste and inefficiency in state government or do you feel like that's really just more of a talking point that we that we kind of hear in the discussions about, you know, taxes and revenue and these things? I think it's more of a talking point. I think that when you go back and you look at look at the revenue streams that got cut over the last twenty years, we've got income tax from seven percent to five percent. If we have a quarter cent reduction in income tax is hundred and sixty million dollars. That's one point two eight million. We, we, we cut the gross production tax from seven down to two. We've got other taxes and credits we've given. So altogether, we've cut about $2 billion out of the revenue stream, but we've only cut about a billion out of the expenses. We've raided every revolving fund there is, and uh, a lot of those funds were, were there for a particular reason. We've taken all the rainy day funds. We spent those down. Our credit rating has gone down. While, while I'll tell you, there is some inefficiencies and some, some things that could be done better. And there is some waste, you know, not to the magnitude that these people are talking about. I mean, it's it's a talking point for them. It's and they want to run government based on a philosophy, and that we're never going to increase revenues. But I will tell you that that the uh, the revenue increase to give teachers a pay raise was a good thing. It was needed. And if you look at the increased revenue that's come in this year, you know, they they took the, they had the seven percent gross production tax, and then they had a six percent rebate for, for horizontal and deep wells. That you know was was done away with, and then you had the permanent two percent for the first three years. Well, that that effective one percent was being grandfathered out. Well, they changed it 
and came back and said, okay, we're going to change the rebate from a 6% rebate to a 3%. That made an effective rate of 4%. Then they came back and changed the, uh, uh, you, know, re, you know, they changed and did away with the rebate completely, which took it up to 7%. And keep in mind, those are going to, those are going to phase out. And then you got the 2% coming behind it. Well, now they're going back up to 5 and that's going to help fill that gap. The other thing is the price of oil went from 30 something dollars a barrel up to 70 something dollars a barrel. So that there's an increase there. We uh, we we removed an exemption on car tags, uh, cars, uh, sales tax on cars. That in turn brought in 100 something million dollars additional. So while while we do have a tick up in the revenue, it's not you know it's not to the level that even keeps it up with inflation. You know, and I can remember, you know, OCPA put out something that said that uh, in 2000, there were $5 billion worth of uh, general revenue. In 2017, it went up to uh, $6.8 billion. Well, it's really not 6.8 because $500 million of it is one-time money mm-hmm. that was reshuffled, and you can't spend the same dollar twice. So it's really, really 6.3. So the increase is $1.3 billion. But five agencies that re- they represent healthcare and social services have gone up $1.2 billion. Now, I- education's gone up about 500 and something million, but that's not even enough to keep up with inflation, not counting for the increased number of students. So every other agency has been decreased dramatically, and that's actual dollars, not, not you know, refigured for inflation, adjusted for inflation. So the idea that government has, has spending has gone up dramatically is just wrong. I mean, it's, it, you know, and unless you understand the numbers, and I know I get accused of getting into the weeds too much and talking about too many details, but if you don't understand those numbers, then you can't understand how the, how the finances of the state of Oklahoma work. And the problem is we have too many people that – I always say that you have these pictures that, that if you have to hold them just right to get them in focus. <laughs> right. And you don't see the picture until you get them in focus. We have a lot of people that never can get the financial picture in focus. Sure. And so that's why we need people that truly understand it and, and people that will be honest honest about it as opposed to going in there with a philosophy that I'm going to walk in there and cut, 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 and I will never vote to increase any revenue of any kind, even though we've, we've had many, many years of, of revenue reductions. You know, we, we need to focus on, on core services, and if, if this idea that we cut things across the board when revenues are low is, is ludicrous. You know, sure. what we ought to be doing is funding core services to the proper level after we've looked at them to make sure they're done cost-effectively and efficiently, but we owe it to the, to the future generations to fund education and, and other core services to the proper level. Absolutely. Well, Gary, I'll tell you that you're always welcome to get as deep into the weeds as you want on our show. We, we well, love, I appreciate that. We, we love numbers, we love policy, and we love getting into the weeds. So any, anytime you uh, want to do that, is, this, you this, come on back. This is, this, this is one time that I kind of wish that we were Skyping. Because as I as I'm talking, I'm sitting there looking at, at, at 50 Angus cows behind me, sitting there wondering what the heck I'm doing. <laughs> if I had known that, I would have turned on the cameras. We could have we could have done this. Yeah, we could we could have done that. Well, Gary, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today about uh, a day in the life uh, of the state auditor, and uh, enjoy the rest of your term. Well, I appreciate that very much, and and uh, you know, guys, I appreciate what you guys do because you uh, you help. You do a lot what we do. We 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 speak truth to power, and you guys do the same. And I uh, appreciate what you guys do. Appreciate well, thank that. you, sir. Fixers, gear up and get excited because that was supposed to be our last article oh. for the day. However, buckle up. However, 
breaking news just across the wire mm. from the Washington Examiner. Court blocks Scott Pruitt's final action as head of the EPA. Here it is. We, we didn't think we are going to have a Pruitt, a Pruitt watch. watch. I did not have anything for a Pruitt watch this week, but my Google alert, my Google uh, news alert, let me know that, yes, there is still breaking news for Scott Pruitt. So a federal appeals court has imposed a stay on former EPA chief Scott Pruitt's final action as head of the agency before he resigned on July 5th. The D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals um, issued a two-to-one order on Wednesday temporary blocking his Pruitt's order to cease enforcement of an Obama-era pollution rule for glider trucks. These are certain kinds of older tractor trailers that don't have the same kind of uh, emissions and pollution controls that a lot of newer built trucks do. And so there's a limit on how many of these can be sold. Um, like there's only a certain number of them. And so um, how many how many old uh, rusty polluting trucks can be sold? Um, I don't know the answer to that but under president obama it was like a few hundred um basically uh scott pruitt had put an order that said these trucks could just ignore emission standards because the epa was trying to repeal those rules all together and the court <laughs> said the epa's action it's the court said the epa's quote no action assurance memorandum um was dated on july 6th one day after he resigned and so it was stayed pending further order of the court hmm. so um, there it is, July 18th, 4.04 p.m. for a watch. I know you're very excited about this. I really am. When we started recording, Scott was like, oh, man, we don't have any more Pruitt watches. Not, but we did. Not even in office, but still making news. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. Uh, don't forget to subscribe and rate Let's Pod This on Apple um, Podcasts and whatever other app that you use. Um, oh, there's the music. I'll get with the program here. Um, so please, yeah, rate and subscribe and help other people find it so that we can uh, we can talk to them too. Um, and they can all be informed and educated voters here in Oklahoma. Remember, you can also connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Let's Fix This OK. Scott is at SC Melson and I am at Andy OKC. You can like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Let's Fix This OK. And our website... The hub of all of our information is letsfixthisok.org. And there you can sign up for our newsletter, read our blog, find resources. We posted two blogs this week, by the way. One was about the podcast. One was about um, applying to be a member of our board. That'll be up until the 31st. So check that out. Um, that's about it. Our podcast is edited and produced by Scott and me. And Let's Pod This is a member of the Mostly Harmless Media Network. Our theme music is provided by the Sugar Free All Stars. Let's Fix This is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization who strives to educate and equip all Oklahomans to engage with their government. We encourage you to get involved in any way that you can. And remember, decisions are made by those who show up. Have a great week. <laughs>